0: Welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour, the podcast provides you with the knowledge and insights you need to achieve physical, mental, and financial well-being. I'm your host, Arlen Pickett, a business consultant who's passionate about helping people achieve a more balanced and healthier life. Each week, we'll deep dive into topics related to health and wealth, including retirement income planning, innovative healthcare solutions, alternative funded health plans, and specific actions individuals and business owners can take to gain control of their finances, have access to affordable quality health care, and achieve peace of mind. We'll also be joined by innovative experts who will share their knowledge and insights on prevalent topics. So, whether you're looking to grow your wealth or improve your health, you've come to the right place. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and empowered. Let's get started. All right, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Health and Wealth Power Hour. I am your host, Harlan Pickett. Boy, I'll tell you, today's going to be something different, guys. Y'all have had me talk to a number of folks, including the Attorney General of the State of Texas, who has now been vindicated, by the way. But we're going to jump into... Okay, we're not going to jump into it. We're going to try to avoid it, but we're going to talk about family violence today. I was... Very honored to meet the Honorable Rosie Speedling Gonzalez here a couple of weeks ago. Whenever I was chosen for jury duty and actually then chosen to be on a jury in her courtroom in the thirteenth uh, court here in Bear County, Texas, uh, she does uh, she does preside over the family violence court, and I learned a whole lot while I was there. Uh, our trial was actually cut short, and we'll talk a little bit about why that happened here in just a little bit, but you guys are in for a real treat today, and you will never find a bigger bigger advocate and promoter of programs, including an incredible program that she put together here in Bear, Bear County, than the Honorable Rosie Speedlin-Gonzalez. Judge, welcome aboard.
1: Thank you for having me on Harlan. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Anytime I'm given the opportunity to provide education uh, through a platform that reaches hundreds of thousands of people. I, I, I need to take advantage of that and I, I appreciate the opportunity very much
0: Harlan. Well, you are very welcome. Uh, as, as I had uh, mentioned to you before, I was really just knocked out. I was so impressed with your, your overall point of view on this and the way that you were so passionate about helping not just the victims, but the folks that had started the problem to begin with, the actual perpetrators in this case, those who were in most cases, as you mentioned uh, before, 90 plus percent. The reason that they're there is because of what happened to them when they were younger, because they are a product of the environment that they were raised in. And you work diligently to break that process. And I think that's just absolutely incredible.
1: Thank you very much, Harlan. And we will, we continue to do that. We've got, and and once we start talking about the program, I want you to remember this. We've got 21 graduates of the program now, and because they've done the program that we're going to talk about, we have a zero recidivism rate. None of them have come back
0: into the criminal justice system. And so let's just start right there real quick. What if someone doesn't go through that, what is the likelihood? Let's say that they 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 serve their time. okay, let's go with that. They serve their time. They are convicted. It's known that they done it. whether they got probation, whether they got paroled, whatever they serve their time. What is the likelihood that they're going to be back in the system for the same crimes then?
1: If not properly addressed, the the recidivism rate increases exponentially. And so what happens to an individual? After their first conviction or the first time they're supervised, and I say that because they have, many people get the opportunity of what they call deferred adjudication probation, and that means if you finish all these programs, the case will be dismissed, but your arrest will always stay on your record. Okay. Then you've got straight probation. And if someone pulls up your criminal record, it'll indicate you were convicted for that particular offense. Here's the problem that folks have when they are either supervised, undeferred, or have a straight conviction for family violence that follows them for the rest of their lives. Oftentimes, in the middle of negotiating with their attorney and the prosecutors, all the defendant hears that is that. They will not have this conviction on their record if they can finish their deferred adjudication probation. The p- the piece that they miss is that that's not expungible. The arrest will always stay on their record. How does that affect an individual in the long term? It disqualifies them from financial aid for college. A landlord can deny you access to rent or lease their property. You can get disqualified from any professional license that the state of Texas issues for you. Uh, anything from a home health care provider to a truck driver to a lawyer, doctor, uh, and everything else in between. And you are barred from being able to protect yourself with a firearm, a gun, or handle ammunition. Uh, so those are some of the consequences. So we create, through that process, this invisible population that is uneducated, uh, unemployed, um, and can't protect themselves for the rest of their lives. They carry that monkey on their back. And so, you know, we have to find a way to kind of level that field. Um, I still haven't been able to sit with someone and say, hey, we got to change the laws because that's not my role as a judge. That's the legislative branch. But it would be great if someone were to I don't know if you remember uh, Beretta and the theme song, don't do the crime if you can't pay the time, right? Right, right. Uh, And so what if someone pays the time? And they're done, they have paid their debt to society and have a zero balance. They come out and now they've got this record. Is that justice? Is it justice to have someone who paid their time and paid their debt to society still carry that record throughout the rest of their lives? So in our court, that program you talked about addresses, at least for first time offenders, an opportunity for them to not have a record to deal with for the rest of their lives.
0: It does. And I don't want people to be misconstrued here. This is not a free pass in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it was interesting when you were talking about the, the program itself. I'm like, okay, someone's got to want it. And you followed that up by saying someone's got to want it because it is not an easy program. In fact, I love the tagline you guys have, and that is redemption through accountability. Correct. And let me tell you, folks, there is a lot of accountability here. So why don't we kind of jump into what that program looks like? Because I don't want anyone to get the misconception that this is just an easy free pass to put somebody back out there on the streets.
1: Correct. So I want you to to keep this in mind because a lot of times my explanation will fall on deaf ears, unless there's something visual attached to it. Before I start into this, I want you to consider watching. I am a stalker. It's a documentary on Netflix about people and where they end up. Should you not get an intervention like the one I'm talking to you about. Almost all of them end up in prison after having hurt someone, maybe even killed someone. There's another documentary on Netflix called Killer Sally. Sally and her husband were competitive bodybuilders and they were using steroids and things of that nature. They had domestic violence within them, within their 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 marriage and she ended up murdering him. Those are just a couple of examples. Now, you will learn through watching those. There's an expert on that type of behavior who says you can change the behavior, but it's got to be very early on in that behavior. And there is data that shows that the most effective way to change that type of behavior is at the first touch with the criminal justice system. This program, Reflejo Court, which means Reflection Court, is only available to first-time offenders of family violence with a history of substance abuse. And the other part of it is that it only works to change behavior if a person wants to change their behavior. And it is at the first touch with the criminal justice system that you're going to find a defendant who's got their faces on their, uh, their, their faces in their hands. They're embarrassed. They don't want anyone to know they've been arrested for this. They don't want to talk about it. They want to do whatever it takes to make sure they never end up in the criminal justice system again. And that no one ever find out that they laid hands on somebody they loved in a hurtful manner. So that's why it's got to be a first time offender and two, When we have the proceeding to bring them into the court, to plead them into reflejo court, they have to tell me on the record why they want to be in the program and that they want to be in the program to change whatever led to them being in front of the court at that time. So that's why it's important that it's only be open to first time offenders with a strong desire to change their behavior because that's the only time this type of program is effective.
0: That I think that's a very, very valid point, because once someone's kind of in this chain of these events happening over and over, right, what are you going to do? You're breaking the chain. You know, so, someone told me before, when you break a horse, what do you have? A horse, you got a broken horse. Yeah. You got yeah. a broken horse, right? Well, when you break a person, what have you got? You, you got a broken person. And so, you're not breaking them right that's not what you're doing in this procedure it's not somewhere down the road that you're breaking them that you're not breaking a habit you're preventing i like to,
1: yeah and i like to use the analogy of a cicadio or an assassin and a lot of us uh, have seen you know movie productions some of us have a history where we may have met someone who is a paid assassin or was and came out of prison or maybe still in prison. And they'll say to you, the first one was really hard when, you know, it took me a while to pull that trigger. But after the first one, the second, the third, the fourth, they were easy. And domestic violence is a crime of progression. It starts with, And I I, I try to educate, especially parents of teen kids when the hormones change. If you start to see specific behaviors like you remember that pretty chain that you gave to that girl or that girl gave you a ring to wear. And that meant you were going together. Right. You, you, You were you were boyfriend, girlfriend. (laughs) <laughs> and all of a sudden one day your child comes home crying. Why are you crying? Well, Bobby or Susie got mad at me for not wearing what they gave me and and um and now they don't want to talk to me. That's a red flag because that's about control. That's about you're my girlfriend, you're my boyfriend, you're going to do what I tell you to do and the rest of the world's going to know you're mine. That's a red flag. Okay. And that progresses from jealousy to anger to a shove to a punch or a slap to choking to murder. And it progresses. The behavior becomes more and more severe. And I, I need parents to understand that they need to teach their children that they can say no and that they can set boundaries and children will only reflect the behavior within their homes so if they see the parents doing that to each other they think it's okay for them to do it so we have to be hyper aware of how our behavior impacts the development of children and teenagers to make sure that we are able to cultivate Healthy and safe relationships, as a, as opposed to dysfunctional relationships, that could eventually inevitably inevitably end up with someone being severely hurt,
0: even killed. So, this program that you've been that you've put in place, the reflection court. I'm not even going to try to speak it in Spanish. Okay, I'm going. I'm going to do everyone a favor. Uh, have you been asked about it? in other parts of the state other parts of the country about implementing things like this i I know that you have a a bit of a speaking circuit that you do as well but have other places considered adding this
1: yes and the reason why is uh specialty courts as we're called uh are have been around for about 20 years and they're around the entire country they used our oversight uh group used to be the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, NADCP. Just last summer, they changed their name to All Rise. Same group. They've got 10 key components and they've got a set of best practices that all specialty courts have to follow to be certified. And the one common denominator with all the specialty courts is they must have a drug or substance abuse treatment component. OK, so we go to these conferences. Uh, we have the Texas Association of Specialty Courts. We've got the national groups. So when we go to these conferences, we share information about what we're doing. I've been fortunate enough to be able to present at some of those conferences. And when that happens, that's when we get the request. We've had requests from as far away as Alaska, from the tribal nations, El Paso, Tarrant County, Harris County, Hidalgo County, Cameron County, Travis County. Uh, the word is out. We're out there. The judges, I get requests for information all the time. And it's judges just like me that preside over family violence cases. And and just to go into this, I know that you wanted people to know this isn't just a pass for first-time offenders, they must make a one- to two-year commitment to work this program. The soonest I've seen, shortest time I've seen someone being able to graduate is 11 months. Some folks have self-sabotaged and taken the whole two years because they don't feel safe. They don't feel like they can do this on their own. And it's a very common occurrence. So it's increased supervision, increased uh, uh, random drug testing. They must have individual counseling. They get trauma therapy. They're involved in group therapies. Um, they are hooked up with ready to work with the city of San Antonio so that we make sure they're employed. Oxford Homes is one of our partners. Those are sober living homes where people can live. Uh, we've got folks at Lifetime Recovery helping us. We've got folks at the Center for Healthcare helping us because a lot of these folks um, didn't even know they had some sort of of issue that needed medication to calm them down. We've got a fully dedicated probation officer. Thanks to Jarvis Anderson, the chief probation officer making sure that we have a a full-time dedicated probation officer uh, supervising our population. Well, we use ankle monitors. We use all the sanctions. Hey, you're going to give me a weekend in jail. Um, When they relapse, we get them assessed for treatment again. We offer residential treatment for them. Uh, We have a full-time case manager on staff and an assistant for her on staff. We've got probation giving us that dedicated um, uh, probation officer. And here's the key to the program. There's a curriculum that we use called Pathways to Healing. That curriculum is taught by one of our local nonprofits, American Indians in Texas. Their offices, beautiful offices, brand new offices are now located on East Commerce, um, right past Hackberry, but before you get to the cemetery. And it was developed by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Jerry Teo. Dr. Jerry Teo is from Southern California. Get this. I met him, Harlan, over 30 years ago. I met him in Austin. I was at a conference. It was was a substance abuse conference. I was still doing social work at the time, and I was required to go and get me. I was on what they call an LCDC track to become a licensed chemical dependency counselor. So I was there for training. He put on a presentation called El Hombre Noble, The Noble Man. I'd never seen a presentation of that kind talking about what men had been put through by society and how they were breaking down and his presentation was on how to build the noble man back up a man that cares about himself his family his children works to support them is spiritual all sorts of these things and i remember talking to him 30 years ago and about the second month i was on the bench I get this big guy named John Vaca walk into my chambers and he says, I've been told I need to talk to you, Judge. Let me tell you, we have a curriculum called Pathways to Healing. At that time it was called um uh I think Healing 360, something like that, but they changed the name to Pathways to Healing. And he starts to pull out the book. And I said, Well, is it science-based? What is it? He goes, Yeah, we've got this guy out of California, Dr. Jerry Taylor. I said, Who? He said, Dr. Jerry Taylor said. I know who that is. He goes, well, he developed this curriculum for violent offenders with a substance abuse problem. And we believe it works, judge. And we believe you've got the population that we can work with. And that was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. So in most cases, if they're not in Reflejo Court, a defendant in my court, in this court, in y'all's court, has to complete a state-mandated program called BIP. B I P P. It stands for Batters Intervention Prevention Program, and so if they're not going to do Reflejo Court, they still have to do BIP. If they're in Reflejo Court, they don't have to do BIT because the 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 program under John Vaca with his assistant Cynthia Garcia, because we split up the genders. We have a female instructor for the women. We have a male instructor for the men. Um, if they complete that Pathways to Healing program, then that is the equivalent of having completed the BIT program. If you're not in Reflejo Court, and that that's just kind of an overview of how our program works.
0: What is What's the other? What's the bit program do that's different from your program? Then,
1: uh, so we have um, regular judges training, and I can tell you that back in January I attended a training. Was, their judicial trainings, and one of the the, the very popular trainers that the the, the college on um, jud- judiciary brings in is a guy by the name of Doctor Brian Meyer. And he's a PhD out of the Central Virginia Health Care System. He's located out of Virginia. And um, he works with community-based outpatient clinics. Uh, and he uh, runs the psychology program uh, and there with that, that particular group. And he came and he trained all these. There were two, 300 judges in the room. And he says, how many of you order your people to do BIP? And everybody raised their hand. And he flat out said, stop doing it. Now, mind you, it's a state mandated class. You have to order it for these cases. And we all kind of looked at him like, what are you talking about? It's state mandated. He goes, it's not effective. It doesn't work. Why? Because it does not include a trauma component to deal with the student's trauma. It's just kind of a notebook of 20 to 25 lessons they go over with them, but nowhere in there Is there a trauma component to deal with their trauma? And he says, and until they fix that, BIP doesn't work. And I had heard some rumblings about that from some of the participants and even some of the instructors, but it's state mandated. What am I to do? But our Pathways to Healing curriculum is a trauma-based program. As a matter of fact, I can tell you now that my whole team, is on a track to make the entire court trauma-informed and trauma-certified. And we're going through a series of classes through our City of San Antonio Metro Health Division, who certifies uh, uh, groups and people to be trauma-informed and trauma-certified. That's the difference. We are coming from a trauma-informed, trauma-based, centric educational component, as opposed to not.
0: And, and so let me, let me be clear, if you're listening out there, what we're really talking about here is getting to the root of the issue because there was trauma that the person that's now committed the crime, they dealt with some trauma. They had some trauma in their past that caused them to create trauma in someone's future or, or now and in their future. And so by not addressing that, the chances of them going right back to it are pretty, pretty good because they still have their problem. No one's even dealt with that.
1: That's correct. Absolutely correct. And what I can also tell you is that there have been some longitudinal studies uh, that there's an attorney general out of California um, who has done all these TED Talks, and uh, she's got a lot of literature out there, and um, she will talk to you about the long-term chronic effects of childhood trauma and abuse. And um, I can't think of her name right now. I know she's a black female uh, doctor, but she will talk to you about how untreated trauma can develop into fibromyalgia, into chronic depression, um, chronic anxiety can create lupus, can even create cancer. Because the trauma is internalized and it's never dealt with in a therapeutic setting and in a healthy fashion. So the individual who suffers the trauma internalize it and develops all these long term health issues and in the long run costs our society, our community, millions, if not billions of dollars in medical care because this yep. individual has a lifetime of issues due to untreated trauma.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, if you talk to doctors, you talk, uh, whether you're talking to a medical doctor or you're talking to a psychiatrist, most of the folks in that realm will tell you stress kills more people than anything else. And stress can go over a huge wide variety of things, but stress kills more people because of exactly what you said. It can be turned to so many different ways, Uh, whether it, it transforms you and makes physical issues or whether the, you then turn that stress into a hugely negative addiction or you turn that stress into hurting someone else that ends up putting you in a situation that you just spiral out of control in uh but that's exactly goes to what you were just stating about that because it is there there are truly people that create their own negative health problems by the trauma that they have suffered uh, on the mental side of it, there is no doubt about that. Yes, sir. So, what is the future of this look like? What is the the what what ideas, concepts, things do you have to improve the program, or is your focus right now spreading it out there, getting out there in more places, so that we don't just have folks in Bear County, Texas, that are uh, moving forward and getting better because of it, but other places in the country?
1: Well, our focus is because we are dealing with violent offenders. Uh, there's limited funding because they, you know, it turns people off. I can tell you that when I first started to want to push the program in Bear County, I met with every city council person and every city, every sitting commissioner individually. I had one council person who will remain nameless uh, tell me, well, Rosa, My constituents just won't support something like that. Well, guess what? He's in a veteran specialty court now. And what I can tell you is that at the time, the county judge said to me, Rosa, helping a violent offender is political suicide. No one wants to help a violent offender. And my response to both of them was, you know what? I'm elected to do a job. I'm gonna do the best job I can do while I'm here. I'm not really concerned about being reelected. I'm I'm more concerned about doing the right thing for the people that put me here. And so um it went from that to okay, you know what y'all don't want to establish it then we're gonna we're gonna know to me means find another way. so when when I did not get the support needed to set this up, then uh, we drafted a House bill, m- me with the help of my spouse, House Bill 3529 during the 2019 session um, that was sponsored by then uh, State Rep. Gutierrez and then by Senator Menendez and signed into law by Governor Abbott that established Reflejo Court in Bear County Court at Law Number 13. Four years later, this last legislative session, it got renewed through House Bill 4333. This time it was sponsored by brand new state rep Josie Garcia, who got bipartisan support for the bill. That had not happened. And again, sponsored by Senator Menendez and Governor Abbott signed it into law again. And so this go around, we're going to focus on making sure that. The court is recognized through a county resolution uh, to exist that we can send up to the Office of Court Administration. And for lack of better words, legitimize us uh, through our local government, as opposed to having to go up to Austin every legislative session, every other legislative session to get, have to pass a bill to make sure we exist.
0: I wanna go back to something you said. That That's very cool, by the way. I, the, the fact you have to keep going through this is crazy but well worth it. But I want to go back to what you said, and I, I think this is one of the craziest statements I've ever heard. Why would we want to help a violent offender? Why wouldn't you want to help a violent offender? Wait a second. Isn't the whole idea for them not to continue to be a violent offender? So Correct. What what are we doing? I mean, the numbers show that if you just throw them into the system, they're just going to get progressively worse and worse and worse over time. If you don't catch them early as the, you're designed to do – what in the world are we doing? We're not helping anybody. Let's help our fellow man. My gosh. They're just they're not just throwaway people. They made a mistake <laughs> that doesn't mean you condemn them forever. Right. And you and I I
1: think have been taught we don't judge pers- a person by the lowest point in their lives. We judge them with what they do with that particular experience. Do they wallow in it and just de- you know just kind of deteriorate? Or did it, do they get up, dust themselves off and find ways to improve their lot and be better people? And that's what we want to help people do through our program.
0: Yeah. I, and that just makes, uh, it just makes sense. It's just, that's the human thing to do is to lift up and help help each other up. You know, if, when the, when the person's down there, uh, sometimes wallowing in their self-pity, they just need that hand. They need someone to to lift down there and give them that hope again. And so that's exactly what I see the reflective court doing is they, they're truly giving them hope. They made a mistake. I don't think anyone that's going through that program doesn't realize that they made a mistake. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. And part of that, you know, uh, redemption through accountability, when they graduate at the graduation ceremony, we will pick one man and one woman uh, to get up on stage and read their story they must and the rest of them their story is printed in the program but they must talk about that lowest point in their life what did they do and who did they do it to to end up in our court and what has happened since then what tools has reflejo court given you what has happened in your life since you did this program and what are your plans for the future
0: I think that's in that that's vitally important because they've got to see that future, right? There is no future until you see a future. If you can see it, you can be it. A- absolutely. What made you go down this pathway? What what did what made you one day say, you know, what I want to do? <laughs>
1: well, it, it you know, it started back in the eighties, and it it you know. Necessity is the mother of invention. I was in a, in a graduate program at St. Mary's. It was a master's in public administration. Uh, Dr. Henry Flores had given me some scholarship money, and I was going to go down that path. And in the 80s, at a ripe age of 21, being at the bottom and partying with my friends was much more important than sitting in a classroom in graduate school. And I wasn't mature enough to to be in graduate school. I ended up dropping out. And at that time, I walked. There was a hospital at the corner of St. Cloud and Woodlawn, where the old San Antonio—it um, was an old orphanage, okay—but it, it now was the Southwest Neuropsychiatric Institute for Children, okay. and it was owned by a man by the name of Doctor Pfeiffer. And it was literally a lockdown, padded room facility for children ages two to eighteen. And I worked on the admissions unit. That was my first touch with the social work fields. I went from there to being a child abuse investigator, to then working with self-proclaimed gang members with Harlandale Independent School District through communities and schools. I worked with the indigent and the poor through c- Catholic charities. I was a steep coordinator, community emergency assistant program coordinator. I ended up then uh, going uh, working as the youngest program director for the Mexican-American Unity Council here on the West Side, running a program for first-time offenders, but juveniles, ages 12 to 15, with some history of substance abuse. And we, we implemented a resiliency uh, type of curriculum with them. If they finished the program, their case was dismissed. Someone in Travis County and their juvenile department heard about me, called me and said, Hey, would you be interested in doing some of the work you're doing in San Antonio for us over here at juvenile court, send in your application. And I did, and I got hired over there. And when I got there, I helped them set up their diverse diversion programs. And then I had three specialized caseloads, Spanish speaking offenders, teenage sex offenders and Spanish uh, and sorry and felony offenders and I was there for about two or three years before I had to go back to Brownsville to help my mom kind of keep an eye on my dad who was at the beginning of his uh, health issues and some dementia went back to Brownsville taught at my old high school and I was a long-term substitute who ended up teaching uh, special ed students and during that time my mom says to me have you ever reconsidered law school. Why don't you you apply to law school? I did. And on the first brush, I got admitted. So I was back in San Antonio in uh, the fall of 98, got my law degree. And then uh, I was what they call a non-traditional student. I graduated my law degree at 36. There's not a single law firm in this town, state or country that wants a brand new uh, (laughs) 36-year-old associate. They They want them young. They don't want them (laughs) already seasoned, and salted, And so I was in solo practice for 16, 17 years. And guess who I represented? The very same people I helped in my 11 years in the social work fields. So I did family law, a lot of CPS, child protective services law. Um, I did a lot of mental health work. I I was an attorney for the drug courts. And um, I ended up being board certified in child welfare law and at the time that I was elected, um, I was the only board certified child welfare loss uh, specialist in Bear County and all of South Texas. So the people I, I helped as 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 uh, I won't call myself a social worker because I don't have a social work degree, but who I helped those 11 years working all those social work jobs ended up being my clients for 16 years. And those are the populations I helped. I was one of the very few attorneys in town that would take payment plans. I'd quote them a retainer and then I'd work with them on, hey, I need a down payment but then every month you come in here and you pay it off and um then before you know it I get elected to this bench and from I brought I brought that unique perspective to the bench. I think you'll be hard pressed to find a judge that did the work I did prior to being becoming a lawyer and represented the populations that I did as a lawyer and now sits on the bench with that unique perspective. And seeing the issues that these populations were dealing with is what led me to say, we need solutions here. I can't just sit on the bench and pontificate and rule and not care about the outcomes. I want our, I wanna to serve to make our community better. Not just to kind of, you know, move files around and, and slam my gavel and take off my robe at five o'clock and go home and not worry about it. I care about my community. I care about our kids. I care about our future. I want to be able to live in a safe community. I don't want to have to always, to this day, carry a firearm with me because we're in a community that's being held hostage by violent offenders. And there's a way to, to, to do it. And we have the science to show it, so why not use it?
0: You, you know, it's it's very interesting. I, I had no idea what you were going to come up with on your your history, but I have to agree with you hundred percent that I cannot imagine anyone more qualified to preside over the cases that come to your court than someone with a background such as you have. But I think that, and I, and it's kind of funny. But how do you find your, how do you, I don't even know the best way to ask this, how do you find that you can be fair and impartial judge when you have so much compassion for those individuals that you know have been through such difficult situations that they're in front of you now. I, I, I don't, because you've had so much time in the social side, uh, you were at a facility where those folks probably were not treated very well, they in the their padded rooms, as it were, uh, that you've seen all of these things happen to these people and you know what trauma has caused. And in many cases, they're in front of you because of a de- difficult childhood that you've seen other people go through. I guess maybe I'm not really saying, I guess maybe I don't really mean impartial, but how do you keep your compassion from them from just overwhelming you when you're sitting on that bench?
1: You know, when it comes down to it, I'm a true red, white, and blue American, and I'm a true red, white, and blue Texan. I'm a proud Texan. I believe, and I do, I I carry firearms, I love guns, but it comes down to responsibility and doing things in a proper way. And I I, I have compassion for the most destitute of souls in our community. But I'm not going to feel sorry for you if you're not willing to do what you need to do to fix what's wrong. And I'm not going to work harder at fixing you than you're willing to 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 work to fix yourself. I will give you every opportunity to fix yourself. If you take that opportunity, you will be rewarded. If you don't take that opportunity, you will be punished. And I'm one of those, uh, you know, we're, we're talking here, political ideology, I may be a Democrat. But I'm a tough justice Democrat. I'm a fiscally responsible Democrat. And what do we mean by that is if we if we don't have the money for it, we go looking for the money. I'm not going to get in debt, <laughs> nor do I want our government to get in debt if we don't have the money to pay for it. But if we have a tax base that can pay for it, by God, let's use it to improve our lot and improve the lives of everyone in our community. And so um, I'm one – to hold people accountable. And and it's part of my story. You heard me talk about I was a product of the 80s. You know, during the, my my 20s, I make no secret about it. I used every drug under the sun. The only thing I didn't do was put a needle in my arm. So I know what can lead up to you being in front of my court. And for for lack of better words, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. (laughs) You can't can't come in front of me and try to tell me, well, I tried this or I tried that and judge it so hard. I said, stop right there because I know exactly what you can do and not do to get out of your situation. And you can't do that in my court because I will call you on it right there and then. And so the compassion part of it is, as long as you're honest with me, don't lie to me, don't try to get one over on me, then I will open the doors to redemption for you. Just be honest and be accountable to me. We will get you bus passes. We will find you professional clothes to go to that job interview for. We will find you a place to live. We will get you into job training. We will make sure you get your GED. We will help you understand how to raise your children better and become better parents. But you got to stay honest and you got to stay accountable and you got to stop bullshitting me and this system so that you can become a better person, a better parent, a better member of our community.
0: Well said. And that right there is compassion. What you just stated and your view of it is actually compassion because letting them stay down that pathway, that's not compassion at all. Once again, it kind of goes back to folks saying, why would we want to help a violent offender? Why wouldn't you want to help a violent offender? That's really my question. Uh, Why wouldn't you when they don't want the help? When What they love to do is be violent. When what they love to do is be part of the problem. And we've got folks that, yeah, (laughs) then we're going to help them by helping ourselves and putting them somewhere they belong. (laughs)
1: And we've got folks that will come into the program and we know by the the third month. They're bsing us, and we will make a list of every time they bsed us and not complied. We'll bring them back before the court, and we'll say, you know what, we've got we've got other people willing to use these resources that are going to use it for their betterment and the better of the rest of us. You want to stay in here? I'm not letting you waste county resources on you. You have absolutely no desire or intention on keeping the tenets of this program, so you're out. And you're out. You're going to go into the general population of probation. You're going to be found guilty. And you're going to have that affirmative finding of family violence. It's unfortunate that you've chosen that. It's been your choice. It's been your decision. Goodbye, sir. Goodbye, ma'am. Hasta la vista. And good luck to you. Tough love. Tough love. Tough justice.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So kind of switching gears a little bit. As you have found yourself in this family court. You've been there for a while now. Uh, Obviously, violent offenders are in front of you all the time. Have you ever felt yourself threatened, either in the courtroom or felt yourself threatened, say, outside of the courtroom because of some of the folks that you deal with?
1: Oh, we get calls. Uh, My coordinator and our clerks field the calls over to my office, and we get folks calling all the time we get family members of these folks, we get the victims of uh, uh, complaining witnesses, we get themselves <laughs> them calling over here <laughs> making all sorts of threats. And what do you do? You know, it's part of the job. I knew I knew it was a, a a a domestic violence court when I ran for it. I knew the population and the best thing I can do, I'm putting everybody on notice now if you don't already know, I'm that judge that got popped with the firearm at the airport. And I paid my fine, but it didn't stop me from carrying my firearm. It just makes me double check my bags every time I'm at the airport before I set foot (laughs) into the airport. But I I carry a firearm with me everywhere. It's unfortunate that I have to do that. I've got another firearm at home right next to the bed and I'm about to buy another one. But I grew up in a family where my dad had firearms all over the house. He was a Mexican feather doll. So firearms don't don't scare me. Um, he taught us to be responsible. Uh, I have a stepdad that's a retired FBI agent, and he has a ranch out between here and Austin, and we go and discharge our weapons about once or twice a year just to make sure that we know what we're doing. And so um, I, I understand the population that we work with. I'm I'm vigilant. I don't let it uh, restrict who I am or where I go um, because I have a a philosophy that it if it's my time to go it's my time to go i could get i could get run over by a via bus crossing the street tomorrow right,
0: right.
1: or you know it's it, so you can you can be the most safe person in the world and you might be collateral damage to someone else's buffoonery and end up dead but does that mean that i stop living life no it just means i carry a firearm and i understand that i could put myself I could put myself in harm's way by sitting on this bench, but if I don't do it, who's going to do it?
0: No. Hey, I I applaud that. I I think every single day, whether you leave your house or not, you put yourself in harm's way. Right. (laughs) Right. That's just the nature of things now. Uh, But I, I think one of the things, and you talked about this actually, whenever I was in court as well. And when we visited your chambers and that is that a lot of times, some of the craziest things, including, as you mentioned, the threats, come from the people that were actually the victims. Yes. Stop. Don't do that to my fill in the blank. Yeah. Because we yeah. didn't I, mean it. Or, right.
1: I, I get people like, I'll, I'll, you know, the, San Antonio is party USA, right? There's a fiesta <laughs> type of event every weekend, if not more. And I'll get strangers, women, sometimes men out of the blue saying, Judge, so and so's in your court. Please fix him. We love him. We need him to come home. And I can tell you that 80% of the people that come in front of me have families that want them back home, but they want them quote unquote fixed. (laughs) You know, because they may have PTSD from being a vet, they may have PTSD from having been raped as a, as a as a young person they may have ptsd from having watched something very violent happen to that to somebody in front of them we don't know right and so this trauma manifests in lashing out and in violence against people they they love and so it's important for for me to educate them and i say well you know call their lawyer and see if they qualify for a special program. And if they do, we'll work with them. Uh, but we have to stop the conversation because there is that person in my court. All I can tell you is call their lawyer and ask their lawyer to do what they can in our court to help them.
0: And so that brings up, you you just said, hey, have them call their lawyer and see if they are eligible for a special court. While your court is rocking and awesome, and the reflection court It is not the only specialty court. We had a little bit of a conversation about this. So tell us, uh, for folks who may not know out there, and they're they're available in a number. I think you told me San Antonio has the most, but there are a number of specialty courts in other Texas cities, and I'm sure in other states as well. So talk a little bit about those.
1: So I just recently learned after I talked to you, we are are tied with uh, Harris County and I believe it's Tarrant County. We all have 15. specialty courts in our jurisdictions i'm going to try and rattle them off i may forget some we have a couple of them with the child protective services docket for uh early born, babies born exposed to drugs. And um, we also have in CPS, uh, a court for kids that were removed because of domestic violence and substance abuse in the home. We have uh, specialty courts within the juvenile court system for kids that are involved with drugs. We have a uh, Esperanza court, hope court for women, sometimes men arrested for sex crimes who have A a substance abuse disorder. We have veterans courts at the misdemeanor and the felony level. We have an adult drug court for misdemeanor uh, drug offenses. We have a felony drug court for uh, felony level drug offenses. We have one or two uh, DWI courts on the misdemeanor level and we have one at the felony level that gets us to 11. So, I mean, that's we we have 15. I just can't name them all off, at the, sure. off the top of my head, but that's some of them. And most of the other jurisdictions that I named, Harris County and Tarrant County, are pretty similar to the courts that
0: we have. And I think it's important that we bring those out because there are certain qualifications, like you mentioned, and it can change the entire trajectory of that individual. And so it's vitally important if you're a family member of someone that finds herself in a difficult situation like this, that you find out if there's something that can help them. Right. Uh, once again, we don't want someone lost into the system that just progressively gets worse. Uh, as you mentioned so many times, the families, the friends, the the whoever, they want them back. They yep. just want yep. them fixed. Right. And that is what most of these courts are doing, is they're fixing the problem, not just throwing them back out there.
1: Right. I think what's what's really hard for some folks to understand and to swallow is that in order to access these programs, they have to be a, a defendant in a case, in a criminal case. And oftentimes, and I don't blame them at all, we have just lay people in the community Coming up to me and uh, the other judges that are running these courts and saying, how does my son or daughter, how can they access the very services that they're accessing, the defendants are accessing? And you turn around and you have to tell them, well, you don't qualify because you haven't been arrested for this issue. (laughs) And they look at you with indignance and, how dare you not offer my child services and offer a quote unquote criminal those services when my child needs the treatment just as bad as they do. And I totally get that, sure. but just, it just happens to be how it works for specialty courts.
0: No, absolutely. And I think that that part of that issue is they, they see it happen. Are they' concerned that they're going to be standing in front of you? Are they're going to be standing in front of one of these other courts? If we don't get it, something taken care of now. And you know, it, it back to my world, the cost of health care, it's, it's astronomical. And I mean, we're, healthcare. care, we're going to throw the mental health side of that in there. And so when someone has these issues, we're talking about $6,000 a month is not unusual for someone to be in a program. People don't have that kind of money. right? And so if they don't have it, then what are they going to do? Uh, you know, we hear it all the time. I, unfortunately, I hear people saying, hey, I need to get my My child on some type of health care because of this. Right. And a lot of times it's because of a situation like that. I have to tell them, hey, we can get you something. But unfortunately, especially in, say, plans that are on Obamacare and such, they're going to cover such a limited amount. And so many of these facilities don't even accept that anymore. Right. And that's a pretty tough situation for anyone To hear. I mean, now you're telling them they don't qualify for the system for the, you know, to be helped through this because they haven't committed a crime. And I'm telling them I can get you something, but it's not going to cover it. Right. So, you know,
1: the the cracks that people are falling into, the gaps are getting wider and wider and more and more people are following and falling into those gaps. And that's very unfortunate. And I hope that, you know. At some point, people, the voting public, puts enough pressure on their legislators to do something about it.
0: No, I agree with you. And uh, here's the unfortunate part that that I see, and and is that we do keep waiting for that to happen. Is <laughs> we yeah. keep waiting on Congress, the legislature, to do something, and we don't just take things into our own hands. You know, one of the things that I really promote is that you don't have to have health insurance to get good quality health care uh there's ways to get it you've got to understand how the program or how the system works to be able to get that i think the same thing can be said there are some places out there that offer affordable access to programs like what we're talking about to uh folks that have addiction issues to folks that have trauma issues there are some programs out there they're just hard to find
1: i will say this and i've had the um The luxury and the grace to be invited into some very private circles of the A's, the the Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine's Anonymous, Codependency Anonymous, you name it anonymous. And when you go into those rooms of folks having their meetings, and I watch that level of compassion come across it is unbelievable to me that if someone walks into that room and says i have nowhere to go i ate three days ago i haven't showered in a week there's going to be one two three people that stand up and say we're going to help you brother we're going to help you sister if you want the help We got it for you. And they will find you a sober house. They will find you free treatment. They will find you a place to stay and live because you made that first step to go into that room, admit that you've got a problem, you've got an addiction, and asked for help.
0: That is, I think that's extremely valuable information right there for anyone out there that has a family member that has been turned away or you've been unable to find that there's programs like that out there. They, they, in those, like you said, the A's, those are the easiest ones to find. There's no doubt there's plenty of those out there while there are certainly other groups, especially for veterans. If you know a veteran that's hurting, you know, reach out to us. I I promise you reach out to us. Uh, You you guys know how to get me. You can, you can always look, uh, look for me online. If you go on LinkedIn, you're going to find me look for Harlan Pickett. You'll find me, reach out to us. And I can get, certainly get you to some of the different groups that help veterans. And we know that PSP PTSD has been such a huge deal for them, but you go to even some of the folks that have been out there for a whole lot longer. Uh, like our buddy, Mike Martin, who was on here a couple of weeks ago, he's still suffering from the after effects of agent orange. And we're talking about decades ago that these things happened. There's so many things that have occurred in that realm and and for veterans that there are a lot of services. But unfortunately, by working through the federal government, you don't know about those a lot of times. You have to go to some of the more independent groups that will help you through that.
1: Yeah. And Uh, and nowadays, nowadays, if if you're looking for an A, all you got to do is Google. A.A. San Antonio, N.A. San Antonio, C.A. It's going to give you a drop menu of every meeting and location in the city. And there's hundreds, 24 hours a day.
0: And that's really anywhere in the country. That's not just here, uh, Judge. That's going to be anywhere. You can do that. I don't care where you're listening from. I mean, I know we got a lot of folks around the the country that are listening. Uh, We're giving you a snapshot of what's going on right here in San Antonio, Bayer County, Texas, but there are movements all around the country to help folks in trauma situations, to help folks in addiction situations, uh, to help our veterans. Don't just let your loved one fall into those cracks that we were talking about. There's a way to help them. Uh, One other thing before I let you go, I want to talk about kind of what happened the day that I was in court with you, the day that I had the honor of being a juror. And it was a very unique situation, you said. It, it very rarely happens. But the, the process, not the prosecution, the, the defense in this case was able to actually get it into the trial. We didn't even get to do a verdict. You got to do the verdict uh, yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that can happen and what kind of made this a unique situation.
1: So once the state puts on their case and they rest, that's the prosecutors. They have the burden of proving the case. Then defense counsel will usually get up and ask for what they call a directed verdict. And their argument is that the state, the prosecutors, did not prove enough of their case to move forward uh, because they were deficient in, in meeting the, all of the elements of the case or some of the elements of the case that would make it worthwhile to continue with the trial and then give it to the jury for a verdict. In your particular case, um, there, was, there was identification issues uh, that made it impossible, impossible for the jury to consider a verdict because you had so much information missing. And so because there was so much information missing in the state's presentation, I had no choice but to grant the defense attorney's motion for directed verdict, and that was the end of the trial.
0: Yeah, I think it caught all of us kind of off guard, all of us jurors off guard, that... It went down this path. We didn't even know such a thing could happen. Right. Right. <laughs> OK. But the case wasn't dismissed. Right. That's a t- different thing. Well,
1: the case he so I granted the directed verdict. The, what it says is that the state did not prove their case and therefore the defendant cannot be found guilty of the offense they were charged with.
0: Okay. So what would be the difference between I'm I'm have no idea. What would be the difference between you dismissing a case and you giving a directed verdict?
1: Well, in a directive verdict, we started the trial that defendant cannot be retried.
0: Okay. Okay. On so they dis- cannot
1: be retried. Nope. On a dismissal, this trial never starts. And so oh, okay. oftentimes what happens is maybe the state will dismiss a case within the statute of limitations, let's say it's only been three or four months since the alleged offense, and they dismiss the case three or four months later, they can always, if it's within that statute of limitations, refile and charge the defendant again because the trial never started on that.
0: Okay, so but once the trial started, they didn't have that option anymore. Correct. Okay, so they could not have... You know, once things started kind of falling apart for them, as <laughs> it did, they could not have said, "You know what? Let's just call this a. We want to do over later. Let's uh. <laughs> well, we
1: we can call it quits, but you don't get a do over because we started the trial, and that's what we call so double the jeopardy.
0: Yep. Right, and, and and of course they had gone through the entire process of choosing the jury. We all went through it. I mean, there was a lot of us too. I mean, there were sixty, and I think they interviewed pretty much everybody, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Whenever there was only six of us, seven counting the the uh, alternate that went through it uh, pretty thorough. Uh, I also was it, it, it's my understanding that not every court does that for the cases, the way you do that. Is that correct? Not no, every every court?
1: Criminal courts have that ability to do that. Uh, if a defense attorney requests it in most cases. Uh, so the, the threshold is if there is a scintilla, if there is a scintilla of evidence that can make it go forward, you must go forward. So a directed verdict, if granted, means there wasn't even a scintilla of evidence to, to lay your head on to make it go forward.
0: No, agreed. Agreed. But in our process, whenever we were going through being chosen as jurors, we went through kind of an individual. Uh, we, we each walked in and got some different questions from you and then from them. Is that commonplace? Because I didn't, I didn't, I've never been through that before. I was very taken aback. So, that, so that's that
1: that's then. the jury selection part of it, uh-huh. right? That's yes, before yes. before the evidentiary part of it, right? I'm so, talking
0: about right. I kind of jumped things on, on you there. Sorry about that's that.
1: That's okay.
0: So,
1: having been a trial attorney myself for 16 years, I know personally that you can win or lose a trial before it even starts, based on who you select as jurors.
0: Sure. Make and sense? so
1: I give as much latitude, uh, as much time, I won't go more than a day, to the attorneys to give them as much opportunities to select who they believe to be the best jurors for this case. That's why in our court, each side gets one hour in the morning, General dire, addressing all of you at once to tell you and question you all in general. And they make their notes on, you know, okay, I don't think we like that one or that one and this one and that one. But then there's issues, especially in the domestic violence court, that you may not want to talk to. Absolutely. Or may not want to talk about in front of 60 people. Uh, And so that's when we bring you in one at a time to tell us things that you may not want to have other people know about you. And that's also when we see a lot of folks come in one at a time. And when they were holding strong in the morning in the big group, all of a sudden they have meltdowns in front of us. They're shaking, they're crying because as you know, I ask you, one of the first questions I ask you, are you an adult survivor of childhood trauma or abuse? And the tears start to roll, the hands start to shake, and they admit it. Judge, right. I, I was a child, or I w- I am a survivor. And so one of the things that I definitely don't want to do to jurors, potential jurors, is to trigger them or to re-traumatize them. Imagine if that person does get selected to be a juror, and while they're listening to the evidence, they have a breakdown. Well, there's what you need for a mistrial, and we have to start all over again.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I had a feeling as we went through that that because of the delicate nature of what could be presented, which, once again, we don't know what's going to be presented, but we do know that in that type of court, there is no telling what could come out. That's and- correct that that could, that could happen. So I want to, want to let you know, I did appreciate the opportunity and I I'm pretty sure the other folks that I talked to did as well, um, including some of those that were not selected. I have no idea what they said behind closed doors, but maybe that was something they were able to present out there as well. And so they did not want to be potentially facing that type of trauma.
1: Exactly. And we are hypersensitive to that um, because Bear County has the highest number of domestic violence cases filed in the whole state. And uh, I think I explained to y'all in chambers, the the courthouse sits very cl- close to the zip code, um, that has from year to year been identified as the most dangerous place for women to live in in the state because it has the highest number of intimate partner violence homicides in the whole state of Texas. So it is a big problem in San Antonio. It'll continue to grow unless we start to attack the root of the problem. And that's the offender behavior. That is the manifestation of their own trauma.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Judge, I really, really appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Uh, I am a a big fan. I can tell you right now, I was a big fan of the the process that you put us through, of the fact that you took the time, not just to, you know, tell us thank you for your service, but to truly bring us into chambers, uh, explain to all of us what had happened, uh, of what, you know, and still grateful for that we were there that we had taken times out of our lives to be there. But here's what happened. Here's why it was still important that we were there. So thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for the kind of the movement that you've started here in Bear County to really help these folks and give them another shot.
1: And Mr. Pickett, if you ever want to come back and just sit down and watch, our doors are open. And if you ever want to bring people over to observe, you're more than welcome to do it.
0: Hey, I sure appreciate that, Judge. You take care. Continue on your blessed journey. I wish you all the best. Thank
1: you so much. Have a great afternoon. And if I don't see you soon, have a great holiday season. God bless.
0: All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Wow. That was awesome. What a great, great individual Judge Speedling Gonzalez is. I am so impressed with uh, the way she has moved forward with this program, the way she has uh, put together something that really provides redemption through accountability, exactly the way the reflective court uses it as its motto. Hey, guys, if you enjoyed that, I hope you'll listen to other episodes. We've got a number of great new uh, uh, episodes coming up, a bunch of uh, new Uh, we got some DPCs coming up. We've got uh, some coaches coming up. We've got a bunch of great new content coming up here in the future. So you guys be sure to go out and to the uh, hwpowerhour.com. That's hwpowerhour.com. Make sure that you subscribe to the the, uh, uh, podcast. It'll come out uh, every week. You'll get it sent right there to your email, and you can check it out, and you can share it with others as well. Hey, and our next big event is going to be on the 26th of September. That is 26th of September 2023. And that is our series on LinkedIn audio called Why Does Healthcare Suck? This time we're going to delve into that prescription drug world and it is America's drug crisis going to jump into that next week. Y'all be sure and listen in 11 a.m. Central Time on LinkedIn Audio. All right, everyone have a super blessed week. Appreciate y'all tuning in.